Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is our 13th of BYU's winter semester 2022. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by Christine Isom-Verharen. Christine is assistant professor of Middle East history in the Department of History here at BYU. She specializes in the Ottoman Empire, in the Ottoman Navy, and in Ottoman women. She recently, in 2021, published The Sultan's Fleet, Seafarers of the Ottoman Empire. I might point out as well that Christine is teaching a course this semester that focuses on women voices in Middle East history. Christine has joined from the booth to discuss the 2019 Saudi film, The Perfect Candidate, directed by Haifa Al-Mansour, showing this week in international cinema. Welcome, Christine. I'm so happy to be here, Doug. We're thrilled to have you here, especially to talk about this film, perhaps some of your research, and perhaps some of the socio-political and gendered context of this film. And one thing that I wanted to point out was that this film opens with something that is very typical and ordinary for most audiences around the world, and that is a female protagonist who's driving a car. But within the confines of this film, this is really unique and interesting and different and already perhaps a challenge to the male-dominated world of Saudi Arabia. I'm wondering if you could tell us something about the film and specifically about this opening. The opening, as you say, when you're initially watching it, you're just like, well, okay, pretty ordinary. But women were only given the right to get driver's licenses in Saudi Arabia starting June 24th, 2018. And so the fact that this film is made in 2019 is reflecting this change that has taken place that women are actually allowed to drive themselves. Before this time, there would have to be a male driver who would drive women when they had to go places. And that's kind of one of the fun things about this film, perhaps, is that it really does kind of show a moment of change. What are some of the other changes that are shown within the film that are happening in Saudi culture precisely in the moment when the film is shot and when it's shown and when it takes place? So another item that would go in that category would be the veiling that you see in the film. And you actually see a variety of different forms of hijab and the fact that women are allowed to be less covered than they have in the very recent past. And so we see actually with the main character, Maryam, making a change herself in how she is veiling. Within the movie, there's a scene that shows a a kind of a fashion show. This is very much a female space, right? And I think that that is both very real, but also quite perhaps metaphoric or symbolic of uh, some of the changes that you see within the film. Perhaps you could help walk us through some of the different items of clothing that Saudi women are shown wearing within the film, and perhaps as well the fact that Miriam tends to change throughout the film. She's wearing one style of clothing at the beginning and then perhaps is a little bit more free at the end. What are some of those styles of clothing and clothing items that she's wearing? I'm an expert on the Ottoman Empire and the clothing names and what people are wearing are somewhat different in Turkey than they are in Saudi Arabia. Abeya, I believe, is how you would pronounce the kind of full 
black outfit that you wear over your head. And also it's long and loose and goes to your wrists and to your ankles. And that is actually what we see in the fashion show is different (laughs) examples of this. And it's like, how do you make this black shapeless covering somehow interesting? And, you know, there's the sleeve. It is actually quite a fascinating moment to see a fashion show of this women's covering, not a very exciting piece of clothing. And we might even consider that part of the humorous elements of the film, right? It's not a laugh out loud (laughs) film, but I think that there are some moments that are a little bit comedic. And I think that this might be one of them, right? This idea of celebrating women's fashion when there's so little variety in the fashion that's being shown. The Saudi, is it, I think it's called a niqab, which is the covering that Saudi women will place on their head to cover up their face, except for their eyes. And that is something that typically would have been worn previously outside, especially in the presence of non-related men. But it is something as well that I think has, since about 2018 or so, been less required of Saudi women outside of the home. Perhaps we should real quickly go over the basic plot line without giving too much away. But what is it that happens and how is it that this is a character who changes from the beginning of the film to the end? So Miriam is this doctor. She works in this clinic. And one of the big issues is that the road to the clinic is unpaved. And one of the fascinating things I think about this film is we have this idea of Saudi as the immensely rich, and but we're seeing middle-class Saudis. They're definitely not poverty-stricken, but she's not driving a fancy car. And she has to borrow money from her sister to go to this conference, even though, you know, she has a decent job. So I think it gives us a real perspective on Saudi society that we don't often think of. So she's going to her job. There's been an accident. She has an encounter with a man who's been injured, who does not want her to treat him because she's a woman. He doesn't even want her to look at him. So there's this big issue of status and gender that are immediately brought up at the very beginning of the film. She's the doctor, but he would rather be treated by male nurses than by the most competent medical expert that's available. Okay. So she wants to go to a conference to get a different job, and she gets her sister to lend her the money And she can't leave the country without the permission of her guardian. And her guardian is her father. And this is another really interesting aspect of the film. Her father is a musician, and music has been an aspect of Saudi society that's recently become more accepted. The particular form of Islam in Saudi Arabia is Wahhabism, which condemns music as a distraction from God, though in other societies, Muslim societies, music is very common, very popular, I mean, has been traditionally. Anyway, he is a musician, and he has this chance to go on a tour with his band. He plays the oud, which is the same as a lute, basically, if you are familiar with lutes. So he's not really available for her when she needs help with this administrative snafu that has happened and regarding her permission of being able to travel outside the country. And because of this, she 
approaches a relative to see if he can help her, who happens to be some sort of an official, and she's told that she can't talk to him unless she's a candidate for the local council. And so she said, okay, I'll say I'm a candidate just so I can get in and talk to him. And so that's how she even becomes a candidate at all, trying to get out of the country so she can attend this medical conference and try and get a better job. So she registers to become a candidate. And then throughout the movie, she begins to take this more and more seriously, her candidacy. That brings up the local councils because they're a relatively new aspect of the Saudi political system that there are some elections there to these local councils that critics say have no power. So it's not like being elected to Congress. It's more like being elected to the Provo City Council or something like that. But this is what she is a candidate for. And the fact that women can even vote or could be candidates is once again a very new thing. So this really is showing a moment of change in the society of Saudi Arabia from what it has been traditionally. That that brings up a couple of uh, issues that I kind of want to get at. And the first one perhaps is the father, a figure within the film. And perhaps the other is the joy of watching this movie is a way to see Saudi Arabia. But let's talk uh, first about the father, because I have to tell you that when I first started watching the film and noticed that through parallel editing, the director, Haifa, and, and we've got to talk about her. We have well. to talk about her. We absolutely <laughs> have amazing. to talk about her. She's amazing. Uh, we will get to her for sure. But she kind of seems to be playing off this a double standard, this dual world that exists in which the father feels a certain amount of freedom to be able to go on tour and leave, whereas she's stuck at the airport because she doesn't have the right paperwork that requires the signature and approval of a male guardian, right? And it really feels like the kind of frustration, bureaucratic frustration that is so common in so many movies. We showed another movie this uh, semester at International Cinema a Cuban film called Death of a Bureaucrat that was kind of along those lines. And I was really kind of sensing the universal nature of some of the stories being told in this movie. But I was happy that the movie ended up going a different direction, that it didn't just all become about bureaucratic red tape. But the father at first almost seemed like he was going to be a negative character, that the film was a criticism of him in particular. And he all of a sudden starts to become this really well-developed character who is a very positive influence on his daughter, even though he's not there perhaps when she needs him most as a candidate. I was wondering if you had some of the same sensibilities about the father within the film and how that might connect to the parents of uh, the director herself, because I think there might be a familial connection. So reading a little bit about the director, it is interesting to see her relationship both with her father and her mother, and how you do see this as kind of an autobiographical aspect to the film. And her father, initially you think is going to be, I don't know, kind of a minor character, but you really see... For me in this film, he has also been waiting his whole life for this opportunity, right? He's a middle-aged man. He's been waiting his whole life for this opportunity. And you're glad that he's actually able to be successful at this point, to be able to 
reach some of his dreams that have been on hold for a long time. And so you do see there's kind of a tension, but it's not the tension that you think is going to be the tension. It's a tension that I think we all deal with in our family lives of who has a priority at a a certain time for their ambitions, their needs, their desires. And so I think he turns out to be a very sympathetic character. And you're glad that he has had this opportunity, that he's been successful. You can still look at the times when he's let her down and you can acknowledge those, but not in the way that you probably think at the beginning the film is going to go. Right. And here you have a film where the daughter is a doctor, right? And the father is a musician, as was the mother who has recently passed away. And the daughter, uh, Miriam, who is the protagonist, of course, in many ways looks down on her father and her mother's professions, even though perhaps she's reflecting some of the same criticism that she's receiving as a female doctor within the society. And so we won't give it away, but I think that there really is a sense in the movie that not only does Saudi Arabia at least make some movement towards change, but also the character Miriam also comes to grips uh, or comes to understand perhaps some of the ways in which she might have treated her own parents in the same way that she's struggled with and uh, seeing them as less because they're wedding singers, right, and musicians, and yet at the same time, they're following their dreams. So I hope that people, when they see this movie, will see perhaps the breadth of a movie that's not just showing a society that limits abilities of women, but as well, society in general. Here's a father who within this society has struggled to be able to explore his own creativity through music. So I think that's a lot of fun. So going back to the idea of seeing, or perhaps we should start, I'll save that one for a little bit later, but tell us a little bit more about the director here, because she is so important to this film. And I think people will really be excited by her when they learn more about her story. And I think that's absolutely the case, because she is the first female Saudi Arabian film director. And This is a huge deal. It's huge. (laughs) And in our own country, women have been very much discriminated against as being directors. But here we have this example of a woman, a Saudi woman, who is directing movies. And I love the movies that she has directed about her own country, but she's done other movies as well. And so she's not just, you know... I can only direct movies about women in Saudi Arabia. She has a much wider range of accomplishments than that. She came from a family, a large family. Her mother actually wanted her to be a doctor. So that's an interesting aspect that we see here in the movie. And she started watching movies at home. Her father would go to the blockbuster and get movies and bring them home. There were no movie theaters to go see movies in. I think that's you know, a very important aspect of her experience. And she sees these movies and then she's really not sure what to do with her life, which I think is, I I can really relate to. I spent a lot of time before I finally figured out what I was actually going to do. And she ends up studying in Egypt, in Cairo, and then she ends up studying in Australia and eventually starts becoming a a movie director originally of very shorts. And then she really becomes 
to prominence with her first movie, Wajda, which she has since, and this is, I brought a book, but you can't see this, <laughs> a book by her called The Green Bicycle, which is actually based on the movie rather than the movie on the book. And she's the author of the book. And it's, it's a very charming, what would you call, kind of young adult fiction book. I've got the library's copy, but I'll return it soon. But it's, it's definitely well- We're going to have a run on that book, I think. Yeah, that's exactly- <laughs> So one of the things to note, this film, Wajda, was the first film shot entirely in Saudi Arabia. And as a director, at this point, when she's making this film, the changes have not progressed as far as they have today. She is directing it from inside a van where she's using walkie-talkies to interact with the actors because she can't be out in public. And can't be out in public and can't be directing men right in their faces. Yeah, that's amazing. And how would how did that change for this movie when the perfect candidate? Well, things have changed in terms of women and men having more interaction. She's able to direct in a more normal directing kind of style than walkie-talkies from a, a van for this particular movie. It was also interesting looking at the actors in these movies, Saudi Arabian actresses, right? I'm like, who knew there was such a thing, right? That there were these women who had acting careers. And the lead actress uh, is just amazing. Her name is Myla Alsarani. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people are going to love her. I mean, she's just really amazing and strong in this role. And to think that these female actors are there and they're working, right? Not a whole lot, uh, perhaps, but it is a nascent film and television industry that we're witnessing on screen. And I think that's amazing. And the first view of her, you have just her eyes, but how much expression she has just in her eyes at that point shows what really a great actress I think she is. Yeah, that's great. And Haifa Al-Mansur is the director, just give her credit again by her name. But I think one of the things that's fun is to kind of see how if this film represents a certain amount of change, right, it's being shown right at the moment in which women get the right to vote, women get uh, the right to drive, women are able now to go out in public a little bit more and taking off uh, the coverings on their faces. But if you see the first film that you uh, mentioned, Wajda, and this film, I think that those two films also bracket this moment of change, just like you mentioned. I teach a class on Latin American film, and one of the things I really emphasize is there's a number of countries that when you watch a movie within the last 10 years, you're watching a film industry that is blossoming, that's growing. Uh, Colombia, for example, is a, is a nation that hasn't had much of a film industry, but in the last 10 years is really starting to come alive. And when you mention <laughs> that Wadja, her first film, I think it's 2012, is that right? Yes, I think, I think so. Date. When that film came out, it was the first feature-length film shot entirely in Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's an incredible thing to say in 2022, 2012, right? Yeah, 10 years, right? And so it is amazing to think of all these changes. And I just find her as a director amazing. She's directing these films. She's writing these books. She has really found a way to make a huge difference. And for me, this is really important because so often as people who don't 
live in this region. We make judgments about the people in this region and especially the women in this region as victims. And here is an example of, yes, you know, she had to direct her first film from a van, right, with walkie-talkies. But nevertheless, she has been able to accomplish amazing feats. Yeah. Um, So what I'd kind of like to do maybe to finish our conversation about this is maybe have each of us just say one thing that you really, really liked about this film and you want our listeners to kind of take uh, from it when they see it. And then I'd like to spend the last few minutes that we have maybe talking about your research, because it sounds really fascinating what you're doing, well, your research and your teaching, especially about the Ottoman Empire and perhaps about uh, women voices in the Middle East. I'll start (laughs) and just tell you that for me, this film was a revelation. And what I mean by that is I learned a lot, but I also thought that it was amazing to watch the veil, both literal and figurative, coming off and allowing us to see, right? And I actually had the privilege of spending a little bit of time in Saudi Arabia uh, quite a few years ago. So seeing the countryside, seeing Riyadh was kind of like a, a throwback for me. But something I had never, ever seen were the female spaces and the female faces that this film shows, right? So that you actually get an up-close, intimate view, perhaps, of a society, a nation, a culture that was completely foreign to me before. And I can't tell you how much I felt like seeing this movie was a privilege and an experience because a female director was showing me a female reality in Saudi Arabia that I never seen before. And that really impacted me. So I actually have a quote from the movie. It's more of a paraphrase, but for me, it is so important. When Miriam eventually says, this was the first time I spoke out in public, demanded to be taken seriously, felt like I am someone. This is really a key point of the movie, so I'm not going to give it all away, but it just shows the changes that she's experiencing as a character throughout the movie. But the fact that because of her experiences, she's felt like she didn't have a voice. And for me, this is so important because I see the director of the movie having a voice and giving the women of Saudi Arabia a voice, which I think is so important. So that sort of ties in with your comment about seeing the space that you hadn't seen before. And for me, this is really important. And I can say that I relate to that in a lot of ways, not having a chance to really sometimes be taken seriously, to have people listen to me, to be able to feel like people are really accepting what I am saying as an important statement. Great. Thank you. And as we transition to another topic, I just want to tell our listeners again, watch this movie. Uh, I think that you'll really uh, enjoy The Perfect Candidate. But Christine, you're doing some amazing stuff on the Ottoman Empire, looking at women's voices in the Middle East. And I'm just wondering if you might tell us a little bit about perhaps this class that you're teaching this semester, or perhaps your book project. What are some of the things that you've done recently? So I'll talk with the class. So 
I'm teaching this class, Women in Middle East History, and we actually start way back. We start back with Sargon the Great's daughter and Hedwana, who is actually the first named author. Not the first named female author, the first named author. <laughs> That's quite saying something. That's isn't it? <laughs> quite saying something. So, one of the things I've tried to do in this class, it's not always possible, but I've tried to, when I can, have focus on biographical aspects of the history, and when I can, what these women have said or written themselves. Because I think it's so important, not just people writing about someone, but having the individuals be able to speak for themselves. And that's one of the reasons why I love this movie and I love this director, right? It's not a Western man making a movie about Saudi Arabian women. It's a Saudi woman doing it. And so for me, this is really important. Going on with your comment today, I just came from my class where we were looking at the letters of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, a English woman who travels to the Ottoman Empire in 1717. And she just trashes the male writers who have gone before her, who have written about the Ottoman harem and just basically made things up because they had no access to this female space. As men, they had no access to it. But as she, as an elite woman, had access, was able to interact with people, women, be able to ask them questions. And it's a wonderful, wonderful source, letting the people speak for themselves, especially the people that we just ordinarily have not listened to. So that is really what I'm trying to do in this class as much as possible, is have individual women that we have something that's written by them. Now, it's not been possible all the time. Another example I have, and this is, I can kind of transition to my own work. I've written about a Ottoman princess. Her name is Mirama. She's the daughter of Suleiman the Magnificent and his wife, Harem. And even her being a wife is an unusual occurrence. And Mirama, as a, a princess has a unique relationship with her father because she's not competing for the throne. And she's able to, in a sense, be a go-between between him and his sons. And I've translated a letter that Mirama wrote in the 1560s, and I have it published in a couple of different articles. I have this letter published. And I was thinking about this, that this is a great opportunity I'm giving this woman a chance to speak again by my translating her letter into English and publishing it and teaching it. And to me, it's just wonderful to be able to give voices to people that we haven't heard from. So this also relates to my current book project. I'm writing a biography of a man who's prominent in the Navy, but not a superstar. It's usually the superstars that get written about, not the, you know, not the, he's definitely more than average, but he's not the most prominent Ottoman admiral of the 16th century, as I've already written about. So, and it's interesting to try and find out about the life of someone who's not quite as prominent. And 
there's nothing written by him, but there's lots of documents written that mention him, that mention his activities. And once again, it's kind of giving people who've been ignored a chance to have their moment on the historical stage. Great. That's amazing and sounds like uh, some really interesting things that you're doing both as a teacher and a researcher. Just perhaps to conclude, I was wondering if there might be a Turkish movie, contemporary movie that particularly like that you might uh, recommend to our listeners. So the Turkish film industry is a lot further along than the Saudi Arabian one. And there actually have been some miniseries produced. And I think there have been modern ones that have been on Netflix, uh, people have told me about. But one of the ones that have been very famous are, they're called The Magnificent Century. They're about Suleiman and Harem and that period. And then the next installment was about the 17th century with a famous Ottoman mother of the ruler, Kusem. And these, I I think you can find on YouTube. I think you can find them with subtitles or with dubbed in English. So they're sort of like history, sort of like soap opera, but they're really fascinating. So that's what I'd recommend. I know the Turks are definitely, have lots of actors and actresses and definitely been making films. And maybe we'll have to consult and next year have another Turkish film. I know we had one a few years back and it'd be great to have another Turkish film that we could talk about. That would be really wonderful. That would be great. Thank you. And, you know, something that never came up in our conversation is that Haifa al-Mosar has also been directing in Hollywood lately. And she has a movie called Mary Shelley that's based, of course, on the writer of Frankenstein that people might look for. And she also has a movie called Napoli Ever After. And so if you want to continue watching some of the films made by this Saudi director of uh, The Perfect Candidate, you might look for those. So I just want to, which reminds me, because she has married, she didn't marry young. She married an American diplomat that she met, I believe, at the showing of her first film. And they have a couple of children. And he is a co-writer on some of her films. So it's really a great collaboration to see this family working together to produce these movies. Great. Thank you, Christine. And thank you uh, to our listeners for joining us today on From the Booth. Uh, This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Devin Glenn, our sound engineer, Hannah Guevara, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. And until next week, keep seeing great international movies.